Hello and welcome to another episode of the Richards Report. I'm Ted Richards. This week, I have an extra special guest. His name is Nick Crocker and he's a partner at Blackbird Ventures. Blackbird Ventures is a venture capital fund that invests in global internet businesses formed by Australians. They look to back world-class founders who are, and I'm quoting from the website here, setting out to make a difference in the world. Simplistically, they invest in startups and early stage investments. And some of their investments have turned into billion dollar unicorns. Nick has experience in being a founder and growing startups, which we touch on, but he also has experience on the other side, and that's what he's up to right now. That's investing in founders and startups. Actually, very similar to a previous guest of the show, friend of the show, Nick Hungerford, who was a co-founder in Nutmeg, the largest robo-advisor in Europe. Nick now works for a Canadian venture capital fund, but he himself is based in Singapore. If you haven't listened to that episode, I highly recommend you check it out. Investing in startups can be high reward, but there's a flip side to that coin. It comes with high risk. It's very easy to recall a story like Facebook or Atlassian, but so many startups don't even last beyond a year. I think you'll really enjoy the discussion as Nick gives us some real insight as to how he goes about the process to manage the many potential risks he has when selecting businesses to invest in. We discuss things like what investment time horizon he considers, the importance of a hardworking founder to steer the ship, how they derive their valuation as to be fair. The businesses are probably nothing more than an idea that's run out of a garage somewhere. And we also discuss some of the red flags to look out for along the way. As always, this is just for educational purposes only and does not qualify as investment advice as your personal circumstances have not been taken into account. And as always too, people may hold positions in the companies discussed. Also, show notes for the episode will be available on the Six Park website, sixpark.com.au. I'm Ted Richards and I'm speaking with Nick Crocker. You're listening to The Richards Report, brought to you by Six Park, Australia's leading online investment service. You're listening to The Richards Report, where we will speak with investment experts from around the country. We will cut through the jargon to allow you to make more insightful investment decisions for your future. This is The Richards Report. Nick, thank you for joining me on The Richards Report. I was actually very flattered when uh, Nick once mentioned to me that you're listening to this podcast. I do. You must be uh, thrilled to have me on. You've had the uh, Brownlow medalist, Chris Judd, the uh, Australian opening batsman, Ed Cowan, yourself as a premiership player, and now me, Noosa Cyclones, under-15s representative. You grew up in Noosa. I knew you was Queensland. I didn't know you you grew up in a, wherever on holidays. I know. It's a It's deceptive. I grew up 45 minutes outside of Noosa in the country. Okay. But when I say Noosa, people know it. Yep. But then they make a lot of assumptions about me that I think are incorrect. Just hanging out at the uh, Life Safe Club. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That was, that was not my childhood. Okay. Nick, you studied law and political science at UQ. And after a short period of time working in the legal world, you, you actually pivoted across to the world of startups. You co-founded and was CEO of Sessions, which uses technology to help people stay healthy. And Sessions was then acquired by MyFitnessPal. This is back in December 2013. You also co-founded We Are Hunted, which was acquired by Twitter. 
You're now a partner at Blackbird Ventures. And for, for those not familiar with Blackbird, can you tell us a bit about that fund? Absolutely. I came to know the fund as a founder in the, in the beginning. I was the third company, I think, that Blackbird had ever invested in. And I'd built a friendship um, with Nikki Shavak, who had founded Blackbird through an accelerator program that he was running called Startmate. And if you trace this generation of Australian technology back to its beginnings, you'll find a lot of connections into Startmate around 2009. So I got to know Nikki and and we were both passionate and interested about uh, startups and investing. Between 2009 and 2013, when I got the investment, I had decided to become a founder. And so timing was really good because Blackbird had just raised their first fund. And so I was able to be one of the first founders that they'd invested in and had the benefit of the of knowing them both Nikki and then getting to know Rick who also co-founded Blackbird getting to know them really well and for anyone that has founded a company or raised venture capital you would know how much it it matters to trust your investors and to be working alongside people that you want to go on the the full journey with whether it's good bad or ugly and so I got to know the fund as a founder and how old were you at the time Great question. So 2013, I would have been 29. Okay. And what type of check ballpark? $150,000 Australian. And then when we exited, we were able to return some, some money to, um, to Blackbird's investors. So we were the, one of the first investments and the first exit for the fund. Um, fortunately, that first fund has gone on to kick many more goals than our small little acquisition. <laughs> Um, and and that, that, that fund includes um, CultureAmp, Canva, Safety Culture, Zooks, among many others. And, and we'll, we'll get to those shortly. And uh, before we, just, we move on, uh, Blackbird has grown so much so that there's many other um, funds that actually give Blackbird to invest amongst many. Um, Australian Government Future Fund, Host Plus, and I, I believe Mike Cannon-Brooks might even be a, um, an investor in Blackbird too. That's correct, yeah. So you're now a partner at Blackbird Ventures. And before we get into the investment philosophy of Blackbird, I just want to talk a bit about investor patience because when you invest, you need to take a very long-term view as you're often investing in startups. And the road for startups is, is rarely smooth. could take 10 years or even longer. Many marriages don't last 10 years. So with all this in mind, how important is investor patience? It's an interesting question because I don't think about it a lot, um, but the more that you reflect on, on patience, ten, 10 years, which is the journey that we go on with founders at least, is a really long time. And to your point, it's longer than most marriages last. And so by definition, you do have to be patient and you can't be hoping that it all comes to fruition within one, two or three years because if that's your goal, you'll never go on the journey that a Canva or a CultureAmp or a Zoox is, is going on right now, where you're building something that is truly global and truly impactful. And doing anything well is hard. Building an extraordinary company over 10 years is extremely hard. And you have to be incredibly patient as an investor. So by default, we have 10-year 10 10 year funds. So we are making that early investment with a view to building a 10-year relationship with that founder and then hopefully investing in them over many funds. So actually extending that, that relationship beyond 10 years. Nick, the term due diligence gets bandied around a lot. 
We even hear it in the sporting world too when teams are looking for a new coach or, or even high-profile new recruit. What does due diligence look like at Blackbird because you're investing in companies that aren't public, so it's, it's not always evident to see all the financial information as it is like a, um, a bank or a, or a mining stock that might be on the ASX, and often you're investing in individuals that don't have a background and a track record over decades that you can easily check. So what does due diligence look like? So it's constantly evolving. Uh, as of today, it's a process that starts with a coffee with a founder and then uh, one of the partners or one of the team having an instinct that this is a founder that we'd like to we'd like to back and go on the journey with. And then an instinct. Oh, absolutely. This is this is a huge so business back in gut, gut feel. Yeah, and and gut feel is really a risky thing to endorse because it can be so wrong in so many ways. So you can't just rely on gut feel. You need you need gut feel plus due diligence. Yep. And so so from that initial gut feel, there's a pretty detailed process that we go through now, and it's inspired a lot um, by what we've read and learned about the way Ray Dalio sets up his decision making or the decision making of Bridgewater. And also, I think another big influence is uh, Atul Gawande has a book called The Checklist Manifesto about how you can improve decision-making through checklists. And so we actually have an investment in a company called Process Street that is a a beautiful SaaS company that enables uh, users to build checklists for all the processes that the businesses run on. So we run our due diligence process on Process Street. And at this point, it's about by the end of the due diligence process, each partner will have rated the company that we're looking at across 75 different variables, product, market, team, traction, and each of those breaks down into a separate subsections. And we will all have formed a view and recorded our view on how strong we think that particular part of the business and all the company is. And what's really powerful about that is it's important to record your decision-making, but now a year or two into the to setting up these processes, we can now look back and see how we were wrong how we were right, uh, what was different, what, what, what we would have maybe, how we would have assessed a founder differently, how we interpreted certain signals positively or negatively and whether how that played out. And so we're starting to be able to feed back into every decision uh, how we made similar decisions in the past. And I think as we build on that data set over many, many years, that's going to be incredibly powerful. But it is constantly evolving. We constantly find new ways to improve it constantly assessing if it's the right if we're asking the right questions and looking for the right things checklist sounds so simple and quite boring but i know that for surgeons for pilots a simple thing like a checklist is dramatic improvement in safety and, and positivity of outcomes 100 mm. percent. if it's good enough for a pilot surely it's good enough yeah, for us yeah, exactly nick i read that you like something called i think you might have said this two shit founders that are building international companies I'll elaborate on the two shit founders that I read, and that is, one, they give a shit, and two, they can get shit done. Let's just break it down a bit more from there. To be a bit more specific, you're like founders with compelling missions and visions. Missions and visions. For, for many, these can be a buzzword that sound excited, they get printed out and stuck on the wall. Football clubs are guilty of this too, and that's pretty much where the behavior and the follow-through ends. So let's unpack mission and vision and the, the traits of great founders. Can you give us some examples? Absolutely. I mean, the, maybe the, the best example or the easiest to understand is Zooks. 
And so the CEO uh, at the time, Tim Kentley Clay, pitched a very, very clear vision of a fleet of autonomous cars on the road delivering a premium experience to the passengers it was picking up. And he delivered that. Uh, I wasn't, I didn't make that investment, but if you, if you go back and you, you look at the way that Nikki and, and Rick, when they made that decision, were inspired and could picture the future that he was painting to them so clearly, it's actually been critical to the success of Zooks because what you're trying to do when you're starting a company is assemble the smartest group of people that you can find. Now, why would a really smart person join an early stage company? It doesn't make rational sense often. They're probably better paid somewhere else. They have more job security somewhere else. Why would you take that, join this uncertain journey? Because you got the buy-in. Because you believe in it. Yep. Because it's a better way to spend your life or to spend the best, the best years of your life or the best working years of your life. And so that, that mission and that vision is so critical at the beginning because it attracts people like us to wanting to fund you because we know then it will attract, attract people, the smartest people that you can meet to come and work for you. And then hopefully it can attract great customers. And, and you can, that mission and that vision reverberates through every part of the company. And a lot of that comes down to storytelling, yeah. which is another fantastic attribute of founders and what I've seen. Uh, how important is storytelling? I mean, it's everything. Because you're always empowering someone else to tell your story on your behalf. So one thing I always speak to founders about is when you're pitching me as a partner, remember that to make a decision, I have to go back and convince my partners of what you've told me. So you're convincing me of a story and then you're relying on me to pass that story on to people who are going to make a decision. And if you haven't given me the right parts of the story, if you haven't helped me to remember the most important parts about who you are, then that's, I'm not going to do you justice in that partner meeting. And sto- so storytelling is often dismissed as a soft skill or not, not of real value, but it might be the core founder skill. Because you're telling stories to customers, you're telling stories to your employees, you're telling stories to potential investors, and the extent to which they believe those stories is going to be hugely predictive of your success. Nick, we've touched on doing the research and the due diligence. When does valuation come into it? How do you come up with the valuation? As, as when you invest often, it's usually a private company, so it's not, it's not public on the, uh, the share market. It's probably loss-making and... And to be fair, there's probably not that many comparables as it may be a true disruptor. Yeah, valuation, uh, I think externally at least seems like a real puzzle. And I would say it's actually not that much of a puzzle. As an investor, we're trying to build our ownership in your startup to 20 or 30%. And so in that early stage of, the, of fundraising, you'll get, you will sell, let's say, 20% of your company on average. If you probably boiled it all down, for us to own 20% of your company today, we'll probably pay a million dollars. Very, very rough averages. And what would increase the price would be a spectacular founder with um, who, who gave you confidence that actually they, they knew exactly what they were doing, that they knew exactly how to spend the money, that they uh, had a really compelling vision for the future. And then the other thing that drives it up is competition. When, when you see an amazing founder, often they will have spoken to all the investors here and in Silicon Valley and price can move through competition and through the fear of losing, losing the opportunity to invest in the best companies. So often those valuations look a little bit difficult to understand at, at the time. How, you know, how are you valuing a, you know, four people in a garage 
with an idea at $4 million or $5 million. It just it doesn't make sense. But two years later, when they have 2 or $3 million of recurring revenue, suddenly that $4 million valuation doesn't, doesn't look so bad. And so I guess it, it looks uh, opaque from the outside, but it's actually reasonably simple and, and quick. And you'd be surprised um, at the early stage how little uh, it actually impacts the long-term outcome. If you'd invested in Canva at X million dollars or X plus $3 million, it wouldn't make a difference really today because they've just been such a spectacular success. Yeah, we'll get to Canva shortly, which is now a... Uh uh, a billion dollar unicorn. Could you give me a ballpark of how many companies you might look at a year? Yeah, it depends what look at. I mean, I would, I would, I would come into contact one way or another with at least a thousand. I would meet face to face with about a hundred. I would have about 10 of those come and pitch the full partnership and I would invest in two or three of those. So a thousand contact touch points. That's on the top of the funnel. Comes two or three. Um, but with that said, I haven't done an investment this year. So it can, it can also, you can, they can come quickly and they, it, it can be a drought. And at the time of the recording, just to give it some context, it's now, um, what is it, mid-September 2019. And to be, to be fair, I do have a deal right now that is in final stages of documentation. But until I wire the money, I, I can't sell it. Okay, okay. With everything that you just outlined there about how many companies you look at, how many people you meet, I think I read somewhere that you measure every minute of your day. Correct. How do you do that? So everyone asks, everyone's first question about how you track your time is a question about tools. What tool do you use? And actually the tool is really irrelevant. The hard thing is just doing it consistently. And it's only hard at the beginning and then it becomes a habit and then you don't think about it. So I use an Excel spreadsheet and it just tracks. I just put from 10 to 10.05 a.m. I did emails. And then from 10.05 to 10.25 I had a call with this founder. And then what I'm able to do, which is really powerful, is at the end of every quarter is to look back at my allocation of time. And really it breaks down into five, five buckets, either email, which is I have not been able to get below eight hours a week of email, no matter what I try. It's admin, which is just everyone has admin in their, in their, in their corporate lives. For me, it might be deal documentation or things like that, four hours a week. I haven't been able to get that much lower. But then, the, then it breaks down into meetings with existing portfolio companies, with new portfolio companies, and then with people in the network who can help one of, one of those two. And so that's where I spend the bulk of my time. And I just want to make sure every quarter that I look back that I spent my time where it mattered. And as you, I've been doing this now for seven quarters, so I can see really consistently um, over time how my time has been allocated. Quarter to quarter, I make adjustments and I'll start to do less of certain things and more of others. And I also rate the quality of all the meetings that I'm having with new companies because what I want to be seeing over time is that the quality of my new co- I'm picking the companies to meet with more accuracy because when you first start this business, in, when you first start in the business of venture capital, it's shocking how many people uh, come inbound um, requesting time and at first you say yes to everything because it's... Um, that's yep. how you build a reputation. But pretty quickly, you, you realize you have to get really good at prioritization because there are, there are only so many hours in the week where you can do great work. And spending too many of those in the wrong, in the wrong context can be 
counterproductive. This episode is brought to you by Sixpark, Australia's leading online investment management service. Sixpark services clients all over Australia and investments are overseen by the Sixpark Investment Committee, which includes Brian Watson, the former Board of Guardians for the Australian Government Future Fund and also former Chairman of JP Morgan, Lindsay Tanner, the former Minister of Finance for the Australian Government, and Mark Nicholson, the former co-CIO of the World Bank. To find out more, visit the Six Park website, sixpark.com.au, and click Try Six Park Now to take the free online risk assessment. Back to my discussion with Nick. Let's go over some of the Blackbird marquee investments, and let's start with Canva. For, my, for those not familiar with Canva, it's a fantastic Australian company out of Perth, I believe, that specialises in helping people with graphic design online. If you're interested, there's a fascinating podcast episode where one of the co-founders, Melanie Perkins, she's on How I Built This, um, talking about her story, and I, I really recommend you check that one out. That'll be available on the show notes on the Six Park website. Canvas started with nothing. I think doing end-of-year school books for Year 12 classes, and it's now a billion-dollar unicorn. I know that you may not have been with Blackbird when Blackbird first invested in Canva, but can you give us a bit of insight as to why Blackbird might have invested in Canva? And um, I guess when you all knew that you're onto something special. So you're absolutely right. You should listen to the How I Built This episode with Melanie, but you should also read a post that she wrote last year uh, and which went into great detail about the early days of Canva. And again, it comes back to that compelling vision. If you, if you go back to the first deck that they ever shared with investors, and she actually shares this in this blog post she wrote, she just set out the roadmap for what Canva was trying to achieve, which was to make, basically to democratize design. And she talked about, or she showed in this slide, exactly where she thought the company ultimately would go. And seven years later, Canva's still in the mode of just getting started, despite the success that they've had. They're still, they're still just getting started as a company. And their execution on that roadmap has really just been extraordinary. And so Mel and Cliff are a formidable team uh, their drive and ambition is just unparalleled, probably. And the chance for them to build a company that lasts for many decades and impacts millions and millions of people is really is real now. It's not, it's not fanciful. That is, that is real today and it's even, even realer in the future. So in the early days, uh, when, I, when I took money from Blackbird, I remember going to the first ever Blackbird Investor Day at the Atlassian offices in Sydney and um, talking to Cliff and Mel uh, in the elevator afterwards and they hadn't released their product at that time and it was all just potential and it was just the two of them and a few others in Sydney and it, it is quite extraordinary to think back and look at what, what they've achieved from, from that point. It's one, of the, it's one of the best companies founded anywhere in the world in the last decade. Just young kids from Perth, it's an incredible story. It is. And another fascinating company which Blackbird has invested in is Culture Ramp, which um, recently actually raised $82 million. Can you tell us a bit about Culture Ramp and why so many people recently invested in it? I can, and I was really fortunate to have joined the Culture Ramp board last year when we led their Series D investment. Culture Ramp takes 
what was previously just something that senior leaders inside companies had a gut feel about and makes it quantitative. So it takes the your company culture and versus sitting around a boardroom having guesses at how you think the company's going, how you think employees are feeling, how you think morale is. It actually puts a number to that and allows you to track quarter on quarter in the same way that you would track your finances or your website traffic, the health of your company at a cultural level. And they've just done an amazing job at uh, finding a global audience of companies that care enough about culture to start tracking that. And what we're seeing is that's every company. That's not just progressive companies. That's not just startups who are um, you know, a long way down the bandwagon of culture mattering. This is every company, um, including ones that are you know, many hundreds of years old, using Culture Amp to track what's happening in their culture quarter over quarter. So probably, that, probably many sporting clubs too. We, we, at the Swans, we used to speak about things like that all the time. Yeah, I, I think most of the AFL clubs in Melbourne use Culture Amp to track their culture. So Culture Amp has, has really tapped into something that seven years ago you might have argued um, was a nice to have and it's become absolutely essential. But what they're doing now that I think is what's getting people so excited is it's not just about tracking how is my team doing as a whole. Culture Amp's starting to help you to answer how is my leaders doing. So you might identify something that's happening in your team but you need one of your leaders to go fix it. And the so... What we, when we talk about the health of a team as a whole, we talk about engagement tools and we talk about how you empower managers to understand the impact they're having. We talk about performance. And I think what's really exciting about where CultureAmp is today is that they've been dominant in the way that they've been able to win the engagement market globally and now they have, have an opportunity to roll out performance to their existing customer base, which is thousands of companies around the world. So we were very excited that Sequoia China uh, led this most recent round. Um, Didier is an incredible CEO and he has uh, he's helped by wonderful founders in Doug and Rod and he's done a really good job in the last 12 months of assembling a world-class leadership team. So you have a world-class leadership team, a product really maturing in the engagement product that they have and then the possibility of a performance product that they can then sell into all their existing customers. And I think... That's oversimplifying it, but those ingredients are what make people or investors so excited about Culture Amp's impact. Nick, going back to Host Plus, which we mentioned um, at the start of the conversation, you probably can't say how much Host Plus has given Blackbird to uh, manage for them. But out of interest, they have their own investment committee that's been incredibly successful. I think it's headed up by Sam Cecilia. Why do they give you the money what, when they could just very well manage the money themselves? Well. I think at this point it's public that Host Plus has over a billion dollars invested into Australian venture capital. Yep. Uh, so if you just look at Blackbird as, a, as one of the managers that they've invested in, we have 60 companies in our portfolio. And if you look at the work that I do with individual portfolio companies, it's weekly or fortnightly catch-ups, it's problem-solving the minutiae of everyday startup life. There's just no way that a company like Host Plus, a fund like Host Plus, can be at that level of detail. They need great managers to be surfacing to them the best opportunities and doing that legwork on their behalf. But they're managing tens of billions of dollars across hundreds of managers. The idea that they would go and have a sit down for a coffee with two founders who are having a disagreement about the way that the equity is being split up is just impractical. 
that's probably a similar reason why the future fund's given given you them some of their money too. Nick, before we finish, let's have a chat about founders and startups. How do Australian startup entrepreneurs differ from American? From from my perspective, so many American startup founders seem to have got the same story. They've studied at Stanford, they cut their teeth in Silicon Valley at, at a unicorn or two, they met some people there, they all got together and went out on their own. Do we have our own pathway here? Increasingly, we do have a pathway. And I think we owe a real debt of gratitude to Mike and Scott at Atlassian for showing what's possible. If, you're, if you grow up in the US, you know that Bill Gates exists and Steve Jobs exists and whoever else. But you have, from the day you are born, these iconic entrepreneurs to point to it and, and say, that's possible. And for a long time in Australia, that was not the case. You couldn't point to someone and say, I can be an Australian founder and have a massive impact on the world. Like pretty much every bit of software that you touch was designed in an Atlassian product. That's extraordinary. And so a whole generation of us now have someone to point to that shows us what's possible. But that's only very new. We haven't had our Steve Jobs and our Bill Gates yet. So the first thing is just understanding the scale of what is possible. Most ambitious Americans grow up knowing that you can build a trillion dollar company. I think Australian, you know, the smartest Australian high schoolers and university students are just waking up to that possibility that there's something else except being a doctor or a lawyer that you can do that can fully express your talents. I think in the US there are some really prestigious marked pathways which you just identified and we don't have those in Australia. You don't we don't have a really clear archetype of what kind of pathway you take to become a founder so the thing that australian founders have is hunger but not the prestige yet i think australian founders have a lot more humility and that works for and against us it's great makes us more honest makes us maybe less delusional but at the same time when you're going to the u.s as we all do when we raise those later stages of funding humility can really work against you and I think there's a cultural shift that needs to happen for every Australian founder that goes to the US. You can't be self-effacing. It doesn't work. And then I think the US just doesn't have a tall, tall poppy syndrome. And we still do. And it's lifting and it's mattering less and less. But it still changes what generations of smart kids finishing high school think about what's possible in their lives. Let's have a chat about founder health as I know it's something that's very important to you it's hard being a founder and you've seen so many can you paint a bit of a picture for listeners what it's actually like being a founder of a startup it's just a never-ending set of problems those problems get worse and more frequently the more quote-unquote success that you have and I was speaking to a founder the other day with a, with a group of founders that we're working with at the moment and I asked him I said now that your company's worth as much as it is are you happy forever? And he just looked at me and laughed because the further into the game of building a company you get, the more complex the game gets and the scale of the problems that you're up against gets more and more challenging. And so inevitably people just tap out at each level and very few make it as far as Mike and Scott did at Atlassian, for example. But the thing that makes being a founder so hard is just the emotional resilience that you need to on the one hand hold in your head 
that you have all of these things going wrong in your company. People are unhappy with you and things are breaking and customers are leaving and investors are getting nervous and, I mean, infinite number of problems. But then right beside that thought, you have to hold the thought that you are building something that is going to be inevitably successful because everyone is looking at you to know that they can believe, to know that they're not in the wrong place. And so you have to be really realistic about all the bad stuff, but never let that take away this fire that burns in you that knows this is going to be a success. And I think we just underestimate in general how much emotional load that takes. And I think we're only just thinking about how to lessen that load or manage that load. So if you think about the life of an athlete, we understand that you need a physio, you need a doctor, you need a sports psych, you need a coach, you need a group of teammates to support you, you need a great diet, you need a regular gym plan, on and on and on. If you're a founder, we're asking you to be absolutely an elite performer at what you do, and yet executive coaching is not universal yet, or, and we don't have a conversation in the way that we do about physical health, that we do about mental health. And so for every founder that I work with and meet, I'm always interested in what what they've set up around themselves to offset the the pain and the difficulty that will inevitably come with building a company. That's the negatives of being a founder. And to finish, what's more enjoyable, being a founder, which you've done, or working with founders and investing in startups, which you're doing right now? I mean, for me, it's way more enjoyable doing what I do now. But I will say that the flip side of, of being a founder, the flip side to all that difficulty is just you do get the knowledge every day that you are building something that is uniquely your own and that you shaped in a way that were it not for you, it would not exist. And so anyone that works in a large company, you know, if you miss a day of work, company's probably still going to keep going. The share price isn't going to tank. You know, if you have a bad quarter, it's probably going to be fine. Take four weeks off annual leave. Take four weeks off annual leave. That's not the life of a founder. And so you know with absolute certainty that what you built exists because of you so that's the that's the positive side but i think it's a i think in this world you either a founder an operator or an investor and i think it's a really individual decision about what positives and negatives you want so in the role of being an investor it is the most incredible job in the world to sit with the best founders that you can find that you opt into working with and to learn from them as much as you try and help them you honestly you learn a lot from the founders you invest with and to spend the journey with them facing all the challenges that they face without ever having to solve them yourself nick thanks so much for having this chat it's been incredibly insightful if listeners would like to see what you're up to and who you're investing in and and your thoughts on all different parts of your role where can they find you online on social media Nick Crocker on Twitter. My DMs are open if you've got interesting ideas. And I'll give a plug to my new newsletter, nickcrocker.substack.com. I'm getting into the habit of writing weekly and sharing it via email. I follow you on Twitter and I know you love a good quote. So you, you put some fantastic quotes out there. Nick, thank you so much for chatting on the Richards. Report. Thank you. <laughs> That's it for another episode of the Richards Report. I hope you enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Thanks to everyone that shares these episodes with their friends and family. I really appreciate it as the podcast audience is growing and growing. 
We're not far away from ticking over 100,000 downloads, which is a tad more than the total amount of Brownlow votes I got over the course of my football career. I'm always interested to know who people would like to be interviewed, so if you have an idea or you can make an introduction, please hit me up on Twitter um, where you can find me and you can also find the show on Facebook now too, so um, search for The Richards Report and you can find me there. Don't forget, the show notes for the episode will be available on the Six Park website and you can even sign up for the Six Park newsletter to receive these in your inbox when they come out. Thanks again for listening in and see you next time on The Richards Report.